0: Well, good morning again, church. It's a joy to see you all here this morning. Uh, We welcome those online as well. Let me ask you, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 12. Uh, We are continuing our series on the book of Acts. And I'll admit to you this morning, our passage is, I don't even quite know how to put it. It's an interesting passage. It's, uh, It's one of those passages... If you don't skip it as a pastor, you just look at it and go, what am I going to do with that? Because last week was a great passage. We had Peter's miraculous escape from jail. There were angels. There were miracles. You know, there was a prison break, powerful prayer, all good stuff. This week, there's worms and death. That's sort of the, it's like, and that feels like a very big contrast. Uh, But actually, one of the lessons we're going to learn this morning is the contrast is the point, uh, because there really is God's way, and there is man's way, and only one of those leads to a good ending. And our passage is not the good ending. Uh, I would even say that our passage today is sort of the perfect example of what the Bible means when it says in Proverbs sixteen eighteen that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. So if you'd like to follow along with me, uh, this morning we're looking at the story of horrible Herod and his belly full of worms. So thank you, Lindsay, for the sermon title. It sounds like a children's book, but it's not. Um, But let's read it together, beginning in Acts 12, uh, verse 18. It says, Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. After Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea, and he spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took a seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms, and he breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray that, um, Lord, even though i prayed in the library, that, Lord, our hearts would be prepared to hear from you this morning. Um, just that, Lord, in all that we do, uh, we'd be attentive, we'd be prepared that we would be surrendered uh, to the Holy Spirit at work in our lives, and to the Word that that, uh, that we will hear this morning. And, Lord, it's a, it could be a tough passage, and it's a weird one, but Lord, I, it, it is your word, and it is inspired by you, and it is useful uh, to our lives. And we pray that we would learn those lessons uh, together here this morning as we look at this passage. Uh, Lord, may you be, may you be glorified uh, here this morning in, in, in what is said. Uh, may our focus and our hearts be tuned to you. Uh, yeah, and we just surrender to you in our time together. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'll begin with a story about a lion, a lion who was very proud, proud that he was a lion, uh, born to be the king of the jungle. Uh, So one day, this very proud lion decided uh, to take a walk just to sort of demonstrate his mastery over all other creatures in the jungle. So he strutted his way through the jungle, and he came upon a squirrel. And trapping the squirrel beneath his great paw, he asked, Who is the king of the jungle, puny squirrel? And the squirrel said, Why, of course you are mighty lion. And he squeaked and ran off when the lion let him go. Well, moving on, the lion next found a mouse. And the lion roared to the mouse, Who is the king of the jungle, tiny mouse? why? You are a great lion, the mouse replied, and then scampered away. Well, next the lion came to an elephant. He walked right up to that elephant, and he asked, Who is the king of the jungle, you big, fat elephant? Well, the elephant looked down at this proud lion and grabbed him by the tail with his trunk, and he spun him around the air three times and slammed him to the ground. And then he stepped on him, forward, backwards, that kind of thing. Uh, Then he picked him up, dunked him in a lake, threw him back on the ground in the dirt. Then finally, the elephant picked up the lion by the scruff of the neck, looked the lion right in the eye, and simply said, you tell me, lion, who is the king of the jungle? The lion coughed and sputtered, and with a very serious tone in his voice said, listen, Just because you don't know the answer isn't any reason to get upset. (laughs) And with that story setting the scene, this morning, we're going to talk about something that can get all of us, or even any of us, really into a whole lot of trouble if we let it. In fact, this thing is so bad, it's so nasty, if we could, we would put on the spiritually equivalent of a hazmat suit just to touch it because this stuff if you get it in you it will kill you because this morning i'm going to talk to you about pride and a person doesn't have to go very far into god's word to find the sin of pride rearing its its ugly head it was pride that led to satan's rebellion it was pride that led to adam and eve's disobedience in the garden it was pride that led Cain to murder his brother Abel. It was pride that caused men to turn away from God, which led to the flood. It was pride that led Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery in Egypt. It was pride that caused the Pharaoh to harden his heart against the children of Israel. And you could go on and on and again and again, you will see pride raising its ugly head. Because pride is ultimately the desire of a man or a woman Wanting to take the place of God in their life with themselves. And in our passage this morning, we meet a man, well, just like that. It brings us face to face with a man named Herod Agrippa. Technically, he was a king, so he was Herod Agrippa I. And again, as I said, on any other day, I can't even really imagine preaching a sermon on this guy's life. He is not exactly the kind of person that you will find spiritual inspiration in. In fact, the only example that Herod ever left was a bad one. And I did mention Herod a little sort of briefly last week. uh, You know, when we heard he had James, the brother of John, arrested and killed. Uh, He had Peter thrown in jail. But let me give you just a little bit of a bigger picture of who Herod is. Um, because the, Herod, the King Herod in our passage, he's actually the grandson of Herod the Great. And Herod Great is probably the best known as the king of the Christmas story. You know, the wise men came to him. And he's also the one, remember, he was the king who killed all of the male children in Bethlehem under the age of two for fear that a king would come and take his throne. And to be fair, Herod the Great also killed three of his own sons, for fear that they were plotting to take his throne. So I don't think he's the kind of guy that lost sleep over it. And our King Herod was also the nephew of another Herod, uh, Herod Antipas, who was, if you remember, he was the one who beheaded John the Baptist in exchange for from a dance from his wife's daughter, who, if you know your family trees, is also, I think, his niece, which is really sad and kind of creepy. Um, but true to form, The King Herod in our passage also only managed to come to power after you know the right people were flattered and the wrong people managed to die. Um, And really, truthfully, the House of Herod uh, as a whole—it would—it would make any soap opera on TV seem tame. There is betrayal. There's adultery. There's murder. There's corruption, incest, decadence, a lust for power so big it needs its own postal code. So it shouldn't surprise us when historians talk about Herod, the Herod from our passage. They tell us really not a day went by when Herod didn't think of himself in terms of kingly greatness. This Herod, um, you know, from our passage, he lived a lavish lifestyle, and he borrowed vast amounts of money, went to quite a bit of debt, and even, you know, squeezed taxes from the common people just to buy, you know, the prestige and the power and the personal comfort that he thought was his due. He took pride in his appearance. He took pride in his possessions. He took pride in his, you know, position. He took pride in his prosperity. He took pride in his power. He took pride in just his birthright as a king. So you could pretty much sum up everything you need to know about King Herod with the phrase, it's all about me. And we see that in our passage. And we see that, the outworking of that character evolving as we go through this passage. So notice a few things. As we begin in Acts 12, verse 18, it says, Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod had searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and he spent time there. Now, as you read that, remember what took place last week. Uh, The Apostle Peter has just, again, once again, uh, miraculously escaped from prison. There were 16 guards on duty. He was bound on each side, both arms, by chains to a a soldier. And yet Peter just walked out the front door of the jail uh, during the night when an angel showed up and rescued him. And nobody in that prison knew what happened. And Luke, who's writing here, he has the gift of understatement. And when he says there was no little disturbance, what he means was there was panic. There was pandemonium in the morning when it came and and Peter was gone. And the result for Herod was, well, it really must have been sort of public humiliation. I mean, after all, he, he was kind of bragging and promising how he could give the Jews Peter. You know, give him... Peter's head on a platter, maybe even after his uncle's example, you know. And there's a few things in this verse that really, I think, highlight the kind of man that, that Herod was. Uh, first, he, he was a man of unbelief. Uh, you know, Herod, he had heard about Peter's, you know, previous miraculous escape from jail in the past, which is likely why he had Peter so heavily guarded. And then he interviews the guards here, and once again. Nothing could explain Peter's disappearance short of a miracle. The only explanation for what was going on was that God was at work. And yet Herod chooses to live in denial, and he blames the guards. It's your fault. Something must have happened. So he kills the guards, and he holds them responsible. This can't be God. It's got to be something else. And that shows us something else about Herod, and that's just his complete lack of regard for human life. You know, as Roman soldiers, generally, if a prisoner escaped under your watch, the punishment generally was death. But that rule didn't apply for Herod's guards. Uh, Warren Wiersbe says, The law did not strictly apply in Herod's jurisdiction. So the king was not forced to kill the guards, but being a Herod, he did it anyways. Human life was just, it was cheap to him. And then afterwards, we're told in verse 19, that Herod went to Caesarea and he spent time there. And ancient historians, uh, well, Josephus, uh, actually records that Herod actually went to Caesarea in order to celebrate a festival and hold games in honor of Caesar. And that's an important verse because keep in mind that Herod, as a king, he wanted to be popular. Uh, He wanted to be loved and exalted by the people. And as the king of Judah... You know, he did all that he could to appear as a devout Jew in public. Uh, He even moved the capital of Judea back to Jerusalem. But what this verse tells us is that while Herod really gave lip service to God, especially when he was in public and he went to Jerusalem and observed the Passover, his heart and his real devotion were to Caesar. Well, and to his own power, really, because Caesar was the one who gave him power. So Herod was a hypocrite. He said one thing in public before people, but in his private life, in his, he, he did others where people couldn't see. He did other stuff. So pretty bad so far if you look at that list. And yet the spiral into pride continues for him. Look at verse 20. It says, Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain. They asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. We're told here, somewhere along the line, we don't have a lot of details, but somewhere along the line, Herod gets into this this dispute with these two cities, the cities of Tyre and Sidon. Um, And the word used there is, it's a strong word. It, It basically was used to describe people who were at war. It wasn't open warfare, but they were, this was not good. This was no small disagreement, especially on Herod's part. Uh, on his part, it seems there to be nothing but unbridled anger. Um, and yet we're never told the reason why Herod, you know, is so mad. But again, this is a king with very thin skin. You know, someone could sneeze the wrong way. Herod would take it as a personal attack. Just as it says, Ro- a Proverbs 28, verse 15 says, Like a roaring lion or a charging bear is a wicked ruler over a poor people. And then the next verse, 16, says, a ruler who lacks understanding is a cruel oppressor. That's Herod. So it's no surprise that Herod has his nose out of joint about something. Uh, But the problem for the people of Tyre and Sidon especially is that they relied on Herod and his country for a good portion of their food supply. So Herod is actually using his power And decides to punish these people by cutting off their food. Herod is literally willing to starve another nation to death over his own anger. And there's a sheer cruelty about that. And there's also just such an inflated sense of self-importance going on here. And it doesn't take us long before the people of Tyre and Sidon were desperate to sort of end this conflict... Uh, So in true political style, they began to spread some money around in the right places, and they eventually persuade Blastus. They bribed, you know, Herod's trust, one of his trusted officials, to gain them an audience so they can finally sort of put this thing to rest. And when that moment came, part of the deal, I think, must have been that was Herod was sort of given this chance to sort of preen in front of them in victory. And we're really coming to the height of what I think of Herod's pride in his own self-exaltation. Historians even tell us that at this event, Herod was dressed in a garment that was woven from silver so that when he was on stage, you know, before the people, his robes would gleam in the sunlight. And the Bible picks up the story there in verse 21, saying, on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. And he took a seat upon the throne and he delivered an oration to them and the people were shouting, the voice of a God, not of a man. And we all know what's happening here. Because no matter how good or how bad Herod's speech may have been, the people from Tyre and Sidon were gonna say they loved it. Because we're hungry. <laughs> like, and they were buttering Peter uh, or Herod up. He's like, Matt, you are such a great speaker. Like, your words are so wise and so powerful and so eloquent. You know, we took a vote, and it's the best speech ever. It really is. Um, they were laying it on really thick. And the Bible tells us they even go so far shouting, this is the voice of a God, not a man. And that was shameless, empty flattery. But Herod must have loved every second of it because he never rebukes the people. In his heart, he really must have felt like, yeah, yeah. I am kind of this awesome. Like, I do deserve this. Because that's where pride takes you. And you know, as I thought about that this week, I want to just take a moment just to step back from looking at Herod in particular. Because I think what struck me most about this passage as I studied it was really how much I think it describes our society right now. Because if you were to take a real honest look at our world today, it would be pretty apparent that pride is the attitude of our day. In our world, pride has become a virtue. We even have a month now to celebrate it. You know, Our world loves the idea that we can reject God's ways and God's truth and we can just do whatever we want. That's something they're celebrating. To the point where I think it would be fair to say that far from being a bad example, many people today would see Herod as a role model. They would see someone as they want, like that they want to imitate. And you know what? If you ask people, you know, would you trade places with Herod? They would say yes. It'd be like asking somebody if they wanted to join the Kardashians, they would jump at the chance for that lavish, luxury, all-about-me attitude. Because our world is like that. Our world is about celebrity. It's about fame. It's about money. It's about power. It's about self-exaltation. It's about getting clicks and chasing clout, which is a word I learned. It's a young person thing. But you know, if Herod wrote a book and called it Getting What the World Owes You by Being More Like Me, it would sell millions. People want that. That many years ago, a man did write a book. Robert J. Ringer wrote a book called Looking Out for Number One. It was a bestseller for 46 weeks. That's the spirit of the age. We see pride has taken hold. And you see that in relationships, you know, where they break apart because that other person just is not, you know, meeting my needs. You see it on TV where there's shows about people who are famous just because they're famous, and yet everybody wants to be like them. You see it on the internet. Is you see people who I want to be an influencer, and I'm going to get free stuff just because people want to know my opinion on things. And you see it on the streets. You know, there's road rage because I own the road, like it's mine. Like what? Get off it. Like, we got passed this morning by this truck going down the Yellowhead. He was dusting, doing a hundred. That's the world. It's like the rules don't apply to me. It's probably texting. I don't care about other people's safety. It's about me. I got to get where I need to get. And if you gave him a ticket, what's his attitude? Oh, I'm sorry. No. If you give people like that a ticket, they're like, "How dare you give me a ticket for disobeying the rules? Do you know what?" Like it just. That's the world. And I could go on and on, but we see the pride in the world. But in essence, I think, I mean, Herod really could be seen as the the patron saint of people who are alive today, who think that life is all about them. And the warning here to us is that even as believers, we are not immune to the effects of pride like that sneaking into our lives. Because as Christians, we can still struggle with wanting to be self-sufficient. We can still very much take undue pride in our talent or our accomplishments. We can still get hurt feelings when we feel underappreciated or undervalued. We can still refuse to live humbly and put other people first. We can still seek a position because we want to be in the limelight. We want to seek the praise of men. And we can still basically live our lives, honestly, we can live our lives ignoring God. So we can just do the things the way that we do them. You know, We can give God lip service on a Sunday morning, but when we leave the doors, so often we just live our lives like everybody else. Because no one's immune from pride. And yet pride does not come without consequences. Because our passage is not done, and as Herod listened to the roars of the crowd, you know, praising his speech as he became consumed in the moment and was swept along by the adoration. As Herod's pride puffed him up, we see that God struck him down. As verse 23 tells us, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and he breathed his last. And that's a good example of the chief end of all pride. And I don't actually, I don't, I don't keep a list, but I truly think Herod has got to be one of the top five worst ways to go in the Bible. He was eaten by worms. And that's not he died and then was eaten by worms. It was he was eaten by worms and then he died. That's just, I felt for Daisy this week. She comes to me, Pastor Mark, what's your topic this week? I want to pick songs for worship. And I'm like, I told her, worms and death. Like, give me your best awful way to die song. But God could not be more clear in the message he wants to teach us here. It's deal with your pride. Because the words of Proverbs 3.34 are still true. God opposes the proud. Deal with your pride or there's going to be consequences. And those consequences may not be your instant and horrible death like here, Herod, but there's always gonna be something that your pride leads you to. Because your pride will lead you to, you know, an increase in ungodly character in your life. It'll lead you to, to fracture your relationships with other people. It'll lead you to consequences for poor decisions. And maybe most importantly, your pride will lead you further and further away from God. Because pride, again, really is the root of all sin. All rebellion, all disobedience, all arrogance and presumption and conceit and vanity and selfishness and on and on. All of it has its roots in our pride. When pride whispers in our ears, do you really need God? Can you not really just do things your way? You know, Pride says you can be in charge of your own life. Pride says it's all about you. No one else really matters as much as you. Pride is it's the antithesis, the complete opposite of a humble and genuine faith. And you know, this passage actually, I think, really sets up that contrast uh, for us. There are so many parallels on display here in, in, in Acts chapter 12 and a little bit of 11 that I think it's obvious that Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, he wants us to see the comparison here between two very different choices in two very different lives. Just to list a few of the contrasts. um, First, we see Peter goes to Caesarea, and he speaks the words of life to Cornelius and his family. And Gentiles are saved. But Herod goes to Caesarea, same city, And he speaks words that lead to his death. Words that lead to life, words that lead to death. Peter, you know, Peter takes a stand before the church in Jerusalem for the Gentiles. He puts his neck on the line for other people. Herod lives his life only for himself. Peter refuses the praise of Cornelius. When Cornelius meets him, he bows down to the ground. He says, get up, I'm just a man. Herod relishes the praise of men when they call him a god. You know, the angel who shows up strikes Peter in jail, remember, to wake him up for his freedom. And for Herod, an angel strikes him too, but it leads to his death. And finally, uh, Herod, you know, tries to persecute the church and kill its leaders, and yet the result is that Herod is the one who's killed. But verse 24 says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Luke is really showing us here there are two paths that you can walk in this life. Two ways of living that lead to very different results. One is living to serve and please only yourself in pride. The other is surrendering to God in humility. And again, those two paths have been before us since the very beginning. Ever since Adam and Eve ate of the fruit in the garden, the struggle has been In our lives, who will be the Lord of our life? Is it going to be ourselves? Or is it going to truly be God? And you know, you can't have it both ways. Jesus even says, Matthew 6, 24, No man can serve two masters. For either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. And to help us just sort of make the choice to walk the path of humility in our lives instead of the path of pride, let me close, I think, with a few applications that I hope will help us all just keep our feet firmly grounded. First application is simply, I would ask, repent of your pride. Um, Some commentaries actually make a point of saying that God was trying to get Herod's attention in all that was going on in this passage, that Peter's miraculous escape from jail you know, his deliverance, was given as a chance for, her to, for Herod to acknowledge that God was at work so that he could repent of his own pride. And yet we know his heart was too hard. And you know, maybe God's been giving you some gentle nudges this morning. And I really do, I think most of us, if we're honest, if we examine our lives We would see at least some areas in our life where we have been stubborn about surrendering to God. And if that's the case, we need to make the change. Never look at pride that is revealed in your life by the Holy Spirit, no matter how small you think it may be, and walk away without dealing with it. Repent of your pride in your life. Second lesson is that you need to know that having a humble heart in our world today is not easy. Uh, Being humble in our society right now is like swimming upstream against the current. It's so countercultural. It's part of what some have called the upside-down kingdom of God, where the first must be last. And to be strong, you must become the weak. In order to live, you must learn to die. And you know, when the whole world is saying, look out for number one, Jesus tells his followers in Matthew 20, verse 26, that whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Humility is not going to earn you the praise of men. It is not necessarily a good career move it's not something that the world will encourage you towards, but it, and it is not easy, but it is our calling as the followers of Jesus Christ. Which leads to the third lesson on humility I want us to remember. That's simply when it comes to learning about humility, there's no better example for us to follow than the person of Jesus Christ himself. Philippians 2, beginning of verse 3, Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death, On a cross, and I know my old NIV translation talks in verse five in that passage is translated, "In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, because we are to imitate Christ's humility, because Jesus Christ really is our model and our example." Which brings us to our final lesson this morning on humility, and that is this: that the best way to stay humble is to constantly remind ourselves of what Jesus grace and mercy did for us. It says in Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9 for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not by works so that no one can boast. You see in the Christian life there's no room for boasting. There's no room for pride because we didn't do anything. Because it was while we were sinners that Christ came and died for us. Jesus came to our rescue. And what we were powerless to do for ourselves, God did for us. We were helpless, and God came to save us. We were lost, and God came to find us. We were dead in our sins and transgressions, but God came to offer us life. Where we fell short, God made up the difference, and he made up that difference by sending Jesus Christ to the cross to die in our place. Jesus paid the price for our sin with his own life. He did it all on our behalf. And all we need to do is accept it. It's a gift of grace. And there is an incredible freedom in finally and ultimately admitting our total dependence on Christ. In coming to understand that it is not about Us. It's all about Jesus. In getting our hearts to that place where just as John the Baptist said, where he must increase and I must decrease. Because the grace and the greatness of Jesus is a great cure for the the selfish pride in our hearts. So in closing, let me just ask, are we ready to live our lives like that? surrendering our pride, surrendering our selfish desires, surrendering everything in our lives. Even if it means going against the attitudes of this world and even our own sinful nature that so often just wants its own way. Because I think that's the question that our passage asks of us. And ultimately, that is the question we need to answer every day that we live our lives. Who is going to be Lord of my life? And I once heard a pastor describe that decision as the most dangerous prayer that you can pray. Because I really do think the most dangerous prayer that you can pray is, God, I surrender. It means praying, God, I need you in everything and for you to be my everything. And I want you to use me in any way that you desire that I will go where you want me to go. I will do what you want me to do. I will pay any price that you want me to pay. I want you to be in the center of my will. I want to be where you want me to be because I don't want to live without you. Lord, I want to invite you into my life, into my family, into my relationships, into my business, into my decisions, into my everything. And I want to make you, Lord, and give you the last word. I want to stop playing God in my life and let you truly be God in my life. And that prayer, that attitude, is really God's answer to pride. And that's where humility truly begins. It is surrendering of everything, even our very selves, to God. Let's pray. Father God, as we have heard this passage this morning, Lord, I pray that just in our own hearts, you would help us deal with pride. Uh, Lord, it can be so subtle and yet it is so deadly to our faith and our relationship with you. And it can sneak in just a little bit at a time. Especially, I think, in North America here, where, Lord, we are so self-sufficient that we can just get into the habit of just doing things ourselves without any need to really seek you or ask you And Lord, I pray that for all who are here, all who are listening, that Lord, you would just search our hearts this morning. That you would reveal any pride, any wicked way within us. That Lord, we would humble ourselves before your greatness and your grace that is offered to us free of charge, knowing that we cannot boast. That Lord, we would surrender all that we are to you. And that, Lord, in living in that way, that, Lord, we wouldn't glorify ourselves, but we would glorify you, that we would be lifting you up by simply the humble way that we live. That, As John said, that, Lord, you would increase even as I decrease, and that, Lord, we would just learn to walk humbly before you in all things. And this, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, Amen.